Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The prophecy in Isaiah said that he will be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. And I already made mention of the fact that, hey, as radical as the virgin birth is, the fact that it was God indwelling Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt and dwelt him bodily. And, and, and so here we have God in the flesh. Well. As we continue on into the book of Luke, we have part one of a two-part message that Pastor Sam has entitled, The Son of God. We will be looking at Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, and we'll be considering the angelic announcement to Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah and her reaction to that news. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter one. We're looking at verses 26 through 56, title of our study this morning, The Son of of God. This particular section here in Luke chapter one begins with a glorious revelation from heaven, an angelic visitation, this, this declaration that Mary was going to bear the Messiah. And then there's this conclusion where there's just this overflow of praise and adoration. And, and uh, it's a, a glorious picture of, well, the Lord speaks to us and then our hearts overflow in praise of him for the things he has to say. I'm hoping that's going to be exactly what takes place in every heart and mind here today. Well, we read as far as the time frame, it's the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Sixth month after the angelic visitation we saw in the first part of chapter one. As 400 years of silence were broken, the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias, prophesies that he and his wife Elizabeth would bear a child miraculously. And so six months go by and now the same angel, another area, northern uh, Israel city is Nazareth there in the area or region of Galilee. This time he comes, we read, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's an essential, this idea of the virgin birth, both prophetically and doctrinally, and that's why it's here in Scripture. In fact, let me read Isaiah 7, 14. Mary, by the way, would have been aware of this passage and no doubt began to put it all together. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the greater miracle there, believe it or not, is not the virgin birth, but that the one born would be God with us. As the Lord takes upon himself flesh, not just appearing in the flesh, but being born of the Virgin Mary. So the Old Testament prophesies it. That tells us it's an absolute essential. If Messiah was going to come and save us from our sins, and that'll be the declaration of, well, our passage a little further in, well, then he had to be born of a virgin. Only Jesus that I'm aware of ever met that qualification. It's also a doctrinal issue. Why? It was a perfect man. Adam, who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now, I know Eve was in on all that. Some like to blame her. But Eve, we remember, was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. 
So of the two, well, listen, they both sinned against God. They both disobeyed God. And, and in the end, it doesn't matter if someone deceives you and you disobey or if you just rebel and disobey, you still disobeyed and you still suffered the consequences. And, and so the picture is, well, prophetically, Messiah had to be born of a virgin. Doctrinally, well, a perfect man sold us into slavery and sin, if you can see that. Adam was the only perfect man until Jesus. Jesus is the only one who maintained that perfection. We'll talk about his righteousness and holiness in a moment. So the angelic visitation, the, the city, Galilee, the area, Nazareth, the recipient of virgin betrothed. This is that period about a year long where a legal contract had been signed between the parents of, of the bride and the groom. They had not yet been legally married, but the betrothal was still a legal contract. So if it was to be broken only because of immorality on one or the other's part, and that immorality punishable by death, so serious issue, here's this virgin betrothed to a man Wolf turn, will learn as a very godly man of the house of David. Her name is Mary. Having come in, verse 28, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, when Gabriel appeared to uh, Zacharias in the earlier part of chapter one, the very first words he spoke were, don't be afraid. 400 years of silence broken by the words, don't be afraid. Here he appears to Mary, he says, rejoice, highly favored one. The very next words he speaks to her are, don't be afraid. So apparently... When an angel showed up with a, you know, revelation from heaven, that was a traumatic experience for the recipient. There was great fear. Why? Because there were only two kinds of angels they were aware of. Aware of. There were warrior angels who came to punish, and then there were messenger angels who came with good news. And until you know who you're talking to, well, sort of a serious issue. Well, she's troubled and a little bit freaking out. And he says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. That word favor speaks to the grace of God. In other words, we're going to see Mary was a godly young gal, but it was the grace of God that she would bear the Messiah. It was it's his unmerited, undeserved favor that, that she would take part in the greatest miracle ever up to this point and perhaps even ever since this point. Well, rejoice, the angel says, don't fear, you found favor and you will conceive and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now I want to deal with the, the uh, various titles given to him here in, in a moment, but, but it's absolutely essential that we see it. The prophecy in Isaiah said that he will be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. And I already made mention of the fact that, hey, as radical as the virgin birth is, the fact that it was God indwelling Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt and dwelt him bodily. And, and, and so here we have 
God in the flesh. Well, you will bring forth the son. His name will be Jesus and he'll have the throne of his father, David. Now, if you've studied through the Old Testament or if you're going through the survey with us on Wednesday, you know that that David wanted to build a temple for God. God said that's not going to happen. But I'll tell you what, I'll give you a son and he'll build a temple. And then he promises him not just a son and a temple, but an everlasting kingdom. Well, Solomon is born to him. Solomon builds a temple. But we know that well, that's the local and near fulfillment. There's a yet further and greater fulfillment because Solomon did not sit on the throne of David forever, but Jesus will. And that's the promise and that's the prophecy. He will be given the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You know, not just to... to um, the, uh, you know, David there, but, but to Daniel as well. Daniel receives prophecy and many of you studied through Daniel and Revelation with us that the son of man would come and establish a kingdom that would go forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It would be a timeless, endless kingdom. And, and that's exactly what the angel is saying here in verse 33. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Recall with me if you were here and if not, let me share with you when Zacharias got the good news, the great news that though he was older and his wife was past childbearing and unable to bear a child, they were going to have one miraculously. Well, Zacharias had problems really believing that and he spoke some words of doubt and unbelief. And, and God basically said, that's it. Well, speaking through the angel, he says, I don't want to hear another word out of your mouth until these things come to pass. So 400 years of silence broken with this glorious good news. And now we can't even speak until the good news comes to pass. It almost sounds like Mary's doing the same thing, but there's a great difference. And here is that difference. Well, uh, Zacharias actually wasn't sure that it could happen. Mary is actually asking about the mechanics, the, the process. She doesn't doubt that it, it will happen. She's just interested in how it's going to happen. And she says, well, here's, here's the dilemma. How can this be since I do not know a man? Now, for those of you unaware, that word know takes us all the way back to Genesis where Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. It's just a kind of quaint and euphemistic way of, of saying, well, you know, they were going to get together and, and, and there was going to be a child. Well, that's for Adam and Eve. But she's saying, wait a minute, you know my situation here, right? Never been with anybody. Don't intend to be with anybody. How exactly that is that going to happen? And so he gives her the process. The angel answers and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, there are a whole lot of things that happen in Scripture when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. We'll get to see what happens when Elizabeth has the Spirit upon her in a moment, when she's filled with the Spirit and they are synonyms in Scripture, the Spirit upon a life or being filled with the Spirit. We'll see what happens to her, but this is the only place I ever read that this happened. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and, and she conceives miraculously. And that's what he says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. You see, 
for God to fulfill his plan and purpose in their life and in our lives, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the dynamic. He is the dynamic for accomplishing the will of God, for fulfilling the word of God. And so the picture is twofold. The Spirit comes upon her and the Spirit will overshadow, he says. It's a picture from the Old Testament of the, the Shekinah glory, it's called, where the glory of God would overcome and, and overwhelm and fill the temple. And, and when we get to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, uh, they're on the, the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and, and the, the Father overshadows them. A cloud comes and the Father speaks from that cloud. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So he's saying same type of a thing. What's he saying? The, the, the Father's going to show up and the power of God is going to be demonstrated and the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Now, Again, Elizabeth, your relative, the angel goes on to say, has conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. There's a question and it's a question that can only be answered with the word no. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the, the answer is, of course not. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Ephesians says he can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And if you trace that back, that means he can do anything above and beyond, well, anything we can imagine or need or ask for or be concerned with. He is able to do it all. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Not even the virgin birth. Not even well, this miracle. Well, Mary says, verse 38, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, there are four statements that we've considered related to who Jesus is. And this is the ultimate issue of this portion of Scripture. Though we're looking at a notable miracle, the real issue is who is this child? And it's important that we get it because ultimately Jesus will not be crucified because of the things he taught or because of the things he did. It wasn't his miracles that they, they crucified him for. It would be for the claims he made. Jesus claimed to be one with the Father, to be the Son of God. And he claimed it again and again. And, and that would ultimately be the charge for which his life would be taken. Well, Mary just says, hey, I'm yours, let it be according to your word, and the angel departs. We already touched on the first of the four. Let me, let me give them to you. First was verse 31, said, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, of course, comes from Joshua, which comes from Yahshua, which comes from Y-H-W-H. It gets shorter and shorter and simpler and simpler. But basically, they would not pronounce the name of God. And so they never wrote the vowels in. That's why there's some confusion as to, well, if you were going to pronounce his name, how would you pronounce it? And, and he says it's Y-H-W-H. Now, here's what's interesting. In our attempt to explain what that is, we come up with a word that's called the tetragrammaton. God gives four letters and we get a, tetra, a five syllable word to explain it. And basically, it's explaining the unexplainable. It's really saying, hey, he was and he is and will always be. 
He is the, the pre-existing one, the ever-existing one. And, and so the point here is you're going to call his name Jesus. Or they would have gone around town saying, hey, Joshua is born. Or more accurately, Yahshua is born. But it all comes down to this. It means God is salvation or Yahweh is salvation or Yehoshua or however it's going to end up being pronounced. Matthew gives us further insight into all this in his gospel in Matthew 1 because he says you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's the purpose for which he comes. I mean, he cared for and demonstrated compassion to the hurting and the needy. He, he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He raised the dead. But he came and did all those things to demonstrate ultimately that he could do the one thing no one else could ever do. And that is save us from our sins. Well, the second thing he's called here in our passage is the son of the highest. They certainly understood the highest was talking about God himself, the son of the father, that holy one, third thing. And, and this is exceedingly important because we've well, seen in our studies in the past, the Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. And then the Bible also says, well, we have the righteousness of Christ. And, and so it's sort of a, a dilemma until you put this together. Jesus is the only one who ever had inherent righteousness. Well, I mentioned Adam had that, but only for a season. We don't know how long it took for him to sin, but we do know that he sinned. So, so that rightness, and that's what the word righteousness means, that rightness, that holiness, it, it was lost to Adam. And, and we've been born descendants of Adam. We're born in sin. So we have no inherent righteousness. And, and as you go through the scripture, you, you see again and again, our righteousness, he says, is as filthy rags in his sight. That means our best efforts, our best intentions, our best works, still unacceptable to a holy God until, until he imparts to us and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So when, when the Bible tells us or calls him the holy one, tells us he is the holy one, well, that's a huge thing. It's saying he is inherently righteous. He's the only one to be found in that state. Well, 34 years after this particular event, Jesus will take his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi and he'll ask them two important questions. He'll say, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And as they begin to share, well, they share, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Actually, Herod starts this rumor and it's the most bizarre of all the things that could be suggested. Why? Well, they're born three months apart. They're contemporaries and they're cousins. Now, it's a little difficult for even Jesus to be his own cousin. I think I mentioned some time back, there's a very funny song called I'm My Own Grandpa, but I digress and, and you can Google it and check it out. It's very funny. But in any case, here you have it. Herod is just kind of losing it. He has had John the Baptist murdered and uh, he's starting, I think, to, to lose his mind because he hears about Jesus. And he says, oh, maybe it's John. He's back. Well, that certainly isn't going to be the case. Some were saying he's Elijah. Now, this actually made some sense. And here's why. We talked last time about the fact that the last word of the Old Testament, the last word in Malachi is curse. But it's in the context of a prophecy that God would send Elijah 
before the Lord came and, and lest he strike the earth with a curse. And, and so the, the deal is they were expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah and they knew it was about the time for Messiah to come. So when they said, well, maybe he's Elijah, well, remember the kind of miracles he was working. Elijah is the greatest miracle working prophet of the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes and he's doing some, well, giving sight to the blind, as I mentioned, giving hearing to the deaf, the lame are leaping and running. He actually uses those signs as, as a testimony of his credentials, a proof of who he is. He was raising the dead. And so some said, well, maybe he's Elijah or Elijah, and, and, and hey, that would have been possible. Well, then some said, no, I think he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of the Old Testament. It would have been Jesus' compassion and care and concern for the last and the least and the lost and the widow and the orphan and the needy and the, the outcast. Man, they could see the compassion that they, they knew was in Jeremiah in Jesus. So some said, well, I think he could be Jeremiah. And, and then some said, well, no, maybe he's one of the prophets. Now, this is so important because today, if you ask people, who is Jesus Christ? Lots of people will say, well, I don't even believe he ever lived or, you know, he's just made up. He's mythological. But among the, the majority of people who acknowledge he lived and, and that he died and well, they're going to gonna really fall into one of these camps. They're going to say, well, I think he was, you know, uh, he, he was, you know, like John the Baptist. He stood out and called people to repentance. In fact, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth after his baptism, there in the wilderness, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, like John the Baptist, called people to turn from their sin and prepare to receive forgiveness. And, and, and become a part of the kingdom. And, and then there are those who are going to say, no, he, he's really just a great miracle worker. You ever talk to anybody who says that stuff? Oh, I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe he's the, the way, the truth, and the life or, or the only way to heaven. I, but just a really good man and a really good miracle worker. Well, you know, I'll buy that, that he certainly did some miracles and, and they're notable. And then the compassion he shows, many see him in that way. And all of those are legitimate. When they said he's like a prophet, well, well, here's why they thought that. In that day, few, if any, ever took any personal responsibility for the things they taught and did. And when Jesus spoke, they took note of this. He spoke with authority. And that reminded them of, well, what it was like in the Old Testament. Remember, 400 years of silence. They hadn't met any prophets like that, but they'd read about prophets like that. So when, when Jesus comes on the scene, well, John the Baptist actually, you know, the closest to an Old Testament prophet. In fact, I think it was Chuck Missler that pointed out that the Old Testament actually ends with John the Baptist because it says the law and the prophets were unto John. And now, of course, we go from John to Jesus. So when they said, well, he's a prophet, it's because he spoke with authority. But unlike the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. That is what separated them from the common folk, you see. They didn't come saying, I think there might be somebody up there. Or I was talking to the man upstairs and, you know, I'd kind of like to let you know. No, they were very direct. Thus says the Lord, and oftentimes followed by one word, repent. That was the common message of the prophets. That's why John fits so neatly into that group. But here's the deal. Jesus never actually said, thus says the Lord, did he? If you trace through it, and don't take my word for it, 
It's a great exercise. Start in Matthew and read all the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and find where Jesus says, thus says the Lord. He never says it, and here's why. He was the Lord. He never had to say, thus says the Lord. He says, you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you. He spoke with an authority that said, hey, this is how it really is, and this is what's really gonna happen, and, and here's what you better do about it. Today, we spent a bit of time discussing the name of God and the name of Jesus. God made it abundantly clear to us that we are to keep his name holy, so much so it's one of the Ten Commandments. What God forbids is not the use of his name, but its misuse. To be specific, we're not to use it in a vain or empty way. The specific misuse that God has in mind is speaking about him carelessly, thoughtlessly, or even flippantly, as if he didn't matter or really didn't exist at all. God's name has deep spiritual significance, so to treat it like something worthless is profanity in the truest sense of the word. It is to treat something holy and sacred as common and secular. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.